If you're new here this morning, my name is Tony Hunt. I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we want to welcome you. And, and what we do here is that we teach from the Word of God. The Word of God is our authority. I am not. I simply come under its authority, and my responsibility is to rightly divide the Word of Truth. And so we're going to go into the Scriptures now, into this book called Acts, which was written by a doctor named Luke, and he gave us an account so that we can know our heritage. Acts literally is the history of the church, our formation. Just as most of us here in this room went through some kind of American history class to understand the formation of this country so we can better appreciate where we're at now, so is the book of Acts for the movement of the Christian faith, where we, in our beginnings, we were not known as the church, but we were known as the way. The way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so we're going to be in chapter 21 of this book. We are wrapping up this series. And we're in the final portions of the book where it begins to be longer narratives. And two weeks ago, I shared from a passage in, in Acts 19 about how Paul wanted to go in and fix something. And he was ready to rush in and fix a situation where a couple of his friends had been arrested. And yet, it was not God's will to fix. That wasn't, his role was to advance the gospel, to advance the good news of Jesus Christ, not to fix an agitated and confused crowd. And we learned a little bit about how to manage such situations from the example of, that God gives us through that story. But today, we're going to go into something that's very similar. I'm going to actually ask you to raise your hands if, in your lifetime, you have experienced a moment where a false accusation about you has happened, and it puts you into a high level of fear for your reputation and your future. If you've experienced a false accusation to that level, would you hold your hands up? Okay, and I'm holding mine up too. It, when you're in the moment of that, is it not true that our inner flesh or our mind and all of our energies and desire wants to correct the situation. We want to defend ourselves. We don't want injustice to continue, and we certainly don't want the false accusation to stand. To lead us into this text, I, I want to share the moment for me where I would say a false accusation had me on my knees. I was a youth pastor for 18 years, and, the, and in my third year of youth ministry, I, had, I was experiencing a lot of great fruit in my experience with Hershey Evangelical Free Church. We had just come off of being at beach camp where some of the students will be here in a couple weeks. And at that beach camp, we saw several give their lives to Christ. We saw lives that were truly changed. We came off of that week thinking this was truly why I got into youth ministry is to see lives impacted like that. It had been up to that point my best week ever. It was incredible. I come back to Hershey on, Sunday, on Saturday, and on Sunday we had youth group at one of the, the elders' house. He was a medical doctor in the Hershey area, and we were at his house, and we had a load of students there that night, and there was a buzz there, and, and they got to share the testimonies of what God did in their lives over the previous week. Everything seemed to be going great, thanking God that he was with us and present. 
Monday morning, I come into my office. I see that flashing red light that says I have a voicemail. Flashing red light for me is like voicemails are difficult sometimes because you never know what's on the other side of that flashing red light. So there's always a little bit of angst when you push the button to listen what's on the other side. And when I picked up, I hear this person, this male voice saying, Hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'm calling for Tony Hunt, and I am an attorney representing a person who I did not know, and I need to speak to you about some alleged abuse on your behalf towards teenagers. I, I'm sitting there like, what is this? So I, I have no idea what the context is because I just come off of a week of an incredible movement of God and I'm on a high and immediately, I mean, I crushed by the statement that there's alleged abuse. I call the number to find, to only get another answering machine and, and then I realized while I was on that that another phone call had come in and there was a voicemail from a grandmother of a student that I'd taken to beach camp the previous week. So I called that person because they said, you need to call me right away. Well, it ends up, there was a story connected between her call and the attorney. You see, the week before, there was, her grandson was at beach camp. And he had had a great week there. And at the night of this gathering at this doctor's house, he had brought a friend. To give you context even to that, at beach camp, there was some, oh, let's call it typical teenage behavior that some of our leaders may have joined in a little bit too far with, and I put a stop to it. Nothing serious was going on, but what was happening was some of our male leaders were showing that they were rather strong and so on, and they would pick up some of our uh, strong teenagers that were rather big and full of themselves, walk them into a bathroom and fake and pretend that they gave them a swirly. Now, some of you are like, what's a swirly? <laughs> well, if you're asking that question, that means you probably didn't go to a dormitory and experience college living. But swirlies were where you would take somebody, put their head into a toilet, and flush it. It's not a good thing, right? You're like, that, that just seems wrong. And it is wrong. It's not a good thing to do. Now, my leaders were not actually doing that. But they were faking that they were doing it. So they would put somebody on their shoulders. They'd take them in there. And then they'd just simply flush the toilet, faking that they were doing that. Well, so I told these leaders, I said, listen, this is not the right thing to do. It's, it's not setting a good precedent for our students. This could get out of hand. So I stopped it. And some of the students were upset because it was a lot of fun for them to try to fight and avoid being picked up, blah, blah, blah. And so that was how the week kind of ended on that front. And so come the night at this doctor's house, this grandmother's son who was there that night kept provoking me saying the reason why I shut that down was because I was not man enough to be able to pick anybody up. Now, the men in the room are smiling because you know. You know what button that hits inside of you. I, I did pretty well for the first two or three taunts of that. 
by four and five, I was like, this kid needs to be shut up. So I took an opportune moment. I threw that kid on my shoulder. I walked him down. There was a bathroom on, the, on this doctor's house that literally accessed the outside part of the house. So I opened that door. About 50 teenagers followed me into that bathroom. I have him on my shoulder. I did not dip him. I did not bend over. I just held him there and I flushed the toilet and I said, now I've proven myself. Shut up. <laughs> right? And I think this is the end of it and it's fine. What I didn't say yet was that this young man who had been taunting me had brought a friend that night who had never been to a church before. He had never been to a youth group event before. And from what I understood at the time, had not been around large groups of students in general before. So he was not used to the aggressive nature of being around a lot of students at one time. And so he was traumatized by me having carried him, even though all the students were laughing, even his friend was laughing, it was not anything there. He went home and told his parents that this pastor was abusing the kids at this event and said that I'd stuck his head in a toilet and said that I'd flushed it and yada yada. So you know the story grows from there. Hence the voicemail message. I have to tell you, when you get a phone message that says, I'm an attorney, there is an alleged statement about you, when you realize that that statement, if it finds any kind of wheels, any kind of validity, or it takes on a life of its own, my career as a youth minister, and probably as a minister, felt like it was at risk in that very moment. I went from having what I would have said was the best week of ministry in my life to feeling like I may lose it tomorrow. Fear was gripping me. And then after talking with several people and, and talking with the grandmother, she was going to try to talk this family and share with them why, why this was taken out of context, blah, blah, blah. Then once we started seeing that things were starting to go in the right direction and truth was starting to come out, the next emotion I started feeling was anger. I got angry because it's like he was messing with my reputation, he was messing with what I felt called to do. I felt like this lie was now starting to mess with what God was doing in our group that was so powerful and so impacting that it's like, how dare the enemy even come in and do that? That defensive spirit in me was pretty intense. But I have to say, once it kind of officially went away, my attitude towards God was this. God, I know you were with us last week, but where were you this week? Where were you this week? I know where you were last week, but where were you this week? Why did I just go through this? Can any of you relate? There are seasons where you can just say, God was there. I've seen God, or, or he spoke to me in these moments. And, and sometimes we don't know how to even explain that to other people. But then there's those moments where it's like, I don't even feel like God's within a thousand miles of me right now. That can happen when you feel like false accusations could potentially undo your entire vision for your future. And that's where I was at in that moment. Paul's in a very similar situation in chapter 21. 
His entire career is being threatened. In fact, it could even end. And it's all based on a false accusation. It's not even true. And the church is trying to deal with it. And it's not going so well. But to get a little bit of our understanding or context, let me begin in verse 1. And again, this is a story. It's a narrative. I'll stop at different points, but keep in mind this is a longer story. So in verse 1 it says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, and that would be the people in Ephesus, because he's leaving Ephesus now, that he had been at for several years. We put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we called on to Syria. We landed at Tyree where our ship was unloaded, unloaded its cargo. Now you think, why in the world is Luke giving us all this detail? First of all, most of the book of Acts, he's recounting from the testimonies of others. But in this case, he's on the team. He's actually part of the journey. And there is an importance because you need to know to what great end Paul was going to to get from what is now modern-day Turkey and Macedonia and Greece, getting from that region of the world back down to Jerusalem. It was quite an effort. So again, picking up in verse 4. So while they were in Tyree, they sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Key phrase coming up. Through the Spirit, through the Spirit, that would be the Spirit of God, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives, children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach, we knelt to pray. The first ever beach camp ever stated right there. So they're there on the beach. They knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus and where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving then the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the original seven deacons. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus, who came down from Judea, and if you read in earlier in the book of Acts, Agabus and Paul actually traveled together and worked together for a while earlier in his career. So verse 11, coming over to us, Agabus took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said this, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the, Je the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When, he heard, when we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So Luke is part of the pleading. He's pleading, don't go. After seeing this prophecy being spoken before him, there's like, don't go. Then Paul in verse 13 answers them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh. There, where we were to stay. He was one of the original early disciples. Let me stop there. Okay, so 
He's leaving Ephesus. He goes and he gets on a ship that's kind of hitting and docking everywhere along the way. It's kind of like riding an Amtrak train. Every tiny town it feels like you're stopping at. And so he's riding a ship getting from the northern parts of, of that Macedonian area. And he's coming down to Jerusalem, stopping at port after port. And, and then he gets to this place in Tyree where he meets with some disciples. And there they, full of the Holy Spirit, say to him, Do not go. To Jerusalem. Then you get when he comes down to Caesarea, then he gets Agabus saying, The owner of this belt's gonna be bound in this way by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles. What's going on here? First of all, you have to question if indeed those believers in Tyree were filled with the Spirit and told Paul not to go, then you would have to say that Paul was being disobedient to the Holy Spirit and to God to go to Jerusalem. If that's the way we're to understand it. Or we could see it as that they were full of the Holy Spirit. They knew what was going on, going to happen in Jerusalem. So then they too, like Agabus and those that were a part of Luke's party, were saying, don't go. This is what's going to happen to you. Regardless of whether he was disobedient or it was merely a warning, it was God's preparation of what ultimately happened. So in my opinion, it could go either way. It is not likely a command of the Spirit to go to Jerusalem because when you look at what happens in Jerusalem, it ultimately leads to the fulfillment of Paul's mission. He gets to leave Jerusalem to go to Rome. And what God's calling upon Paul's life was to the Gentiles. So Rome was the center of the Gentile uh, uh, epicenter of Gentile culture. So I believe that this was part of God's plan. And so I just, I look at it as like, this is a revelation where Paul is being prepared for hardship. So then you got Agabus speaking into him. You got godly people begging him not to go. But Paul says there in verse 13 says, you know what? I am prepared to die for Jesus' name. I'm prepared. So regardless of whether or not he was in disobedience to go or he was merely being prepared for what was going to happen when he went, the reality was is Paul was committed to losing his life for the sake of Jesus. So then he departs and he goes on to Jerusalem. So it's picking up in verse 17. It says, When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. Now James is the brother of Jesus and was seen as the, if the Catholic Church would say he was literally the first priest. So you, he was literally the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So James, they, he goes there, and then it says all the elders were present. So in verse 19, Paul greets them and then reports in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When these Jews in Jerusalem hear this, they praise God, and then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that uh, that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them to not circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what shall we do then? They will certainly hear that you have come and so... Do, we, well, do, do what we tell you. Um, so do what we tell you. There are four men 
who are prepared to take a vow. Then everyone, um, so if you then join them in their purification rites, pay for their expenses, and have their heads shaved, then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in accordance to the obedience of the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have already written to them about our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Okay, so Paul arrives in Jerusalem. First thing that happens, he gives a report. Thousands of Gentiles are coming to belief in Jesus Christ. And they celebrate it. They respond in kind, the Jews from Jerusalem, they respond in kind saying, thousands of Jews have come to faith in Christ around Jerusalem. And so they celebrate this moment. But it was a subtle segue for the leaders in Jerusalem to say, but these Jews that have been saved around here are hearing rumors that you are saying the law doesn't matter. In fact, that you're opposed to the law. So what do you do? That could hinder the movement of the church because it would suggest that, that all of the past of the law and the, and the history of God's leadership of the people, that basically you're nullifying it and saying it didn't matter. So this would undo the kingdom work of the gospel. And, and so they're saying, Paul, this reputation of yours needs fixed. Now, it's not a true accusation, but they're saying your reputation needs fixed. So what do they do? They provide an alibi. They provide a way to kind of cover it over to prove that he truly is practicing of the law. So there were some men that were about ready to go through what is called a Nazarite vow. It would be basically the most intensive type of seven days of, of worship following after the law that you could possibly do. It involves shaving of a head, it involves fasting, it involves praying and meditation over a short period of time in an intense manner. And so they told Paul, if you join these four guys, then people will know that you are serious about the law. Oh, and not just join them, pay for it. And then people will really know that you still care about the law. Great plan, right? If people are thinking you don't care about the law, then practice the law in the most extreme way. Be a Nazarite in your following of the law. Problem is, not all alibis work. Another story from my life here for a moment. I, I was a teenager. Uh, at this point in time in my life, it would have been my, my junior year of high school. And I was involved with Bible quizzing with this organization called Youth for Christ. And the top Bible quizzers in the nation that was part of this large evangelical association would gather once a year for a national quiz off. And so each city could bring its top quizzers. Now, I got involved with Bible quizzing for one reason and one reason only. It was four to one, male, female to male. And being a 17-year-old guy doing good math, that's like, that's a great opportunity. 
And so I was involved for Bible quizzing, not for the right reasons, but nonetheless, I did it, and I got pretty good at it. So I went on. I, my goal every year, though, was to make this national team representing Kansas City, because then you got to go on a trip and be a part of the national quiz-off. And so me and my friend, we would look forward to it every year, but we had developed a reputation of doing pranks that our leader from Kansas City didn't appreciate. And so in this, what was going to be my final year of going to the Bible quiz off, she said I could not go unless I was willing to agree that I would not do any pranks while on that trip. I was reluctant, but I agreed to it. And so we went off, and this particular quiz nationals was in Indiana. So we went to this small city in Indiana. We're in a nice big hotel that was the shape of an L. Um, so there's, you know, a capital L. So it was kind of that kind of wing. And, and, uh, and about 400 quizzers were in the lower portion or the shorter portion of this hotel. And all other guests were in the longer portion of the hotel. So they kind of kept us teenagers away from everybody else. Well, we showed up to the hotel and all the different charter buses were pulling in from all over the country with Bible quizzers on them. And the reason why I got caught up in the pranking was that there was this lady that was from Minnesota who was a master pranker herself. And she would always do things to us. Now, she's an adult. She should be responsible. We're merely students following her lead. That's how I took it. And so we see the bus from Minnesota show up. I see her get off, and, and she's in, and there's about 100 people in this very crowded lobby. I see her back is turned towards me. I go over, I tap her shoulder, and I said hello to her. She turns around and immediately douses me with a full cup of ice water. Every bone in my body was like, game on. You know, it's like, that's like the ultimate, let's, let's get it rolling, but I see right behind her, the leader from Kansas City who I'd made my deal with. And she's looking at me like, can't do anything. Can't do anything. For four days, I honored my word. And on the fifth, I took a sabbatical from my word. <laughs> because it was the final night of the Bible quiz tournament, and we decided it was time to have some retribution. And so we filled up that morning a, a, a trash can from our room. We filled it up with ice and then put water in it. And we let it soak all day long. It kept adding ice as we go back to our room. And then that night, when everybody was saying, you know, like this is the final evening, we're going to be leaving early the next morning, I see I'm on her floor because I was uh, two floors below her. I'm on this lady's floor. I see her get off the elevator, but I'm surrounded by a group of students. She sees me and she tries to duck her head and walk up the hallway as, so as to not be noticed by me. She doesn't see that I have this bucket of ice, but I come in behind her. She's unlocking their door and I dumped it over her head. Now, ice water on any woman creates a scream, right? Well, maybe on any guy as well, but that's beside the point. But I dumped this on her, and her immediate response after the scream was to take my sunglasses off my shirt that I had hanging there and starts running down the hallway and makes the turn up the other section of the hotel where we were not to be. I chase her down that hallway. She screams the entire way. She goes up to this elevator, starts pounding on it, 
I get my sunglasses from her and I run to this fire escape stairwell and I start running down a couple floors to where my floor is. I get to my floor, I'm laughing, but I'm also kind of out of breath. And one of my friends comes up to me and says, what did you just do? I said, what do you mean? He goes, police just ran up the stairwell looking for a guy with blonde hair and a yellow t-shirt. I was wearing a yellow t-shirt. And I have blonde hair. I'm like, I didn't do anything. And they go, well, they were really serious. And they were running up the stairs looking for you. And I'm like, oh, man. So then I went back up the stairs to that floor thinking I could try to figure something out. But as I'm coming around the corner to that level, I see the door open to that stairwell level. And I see, all I can see are the feet of cops with guns pulled. Not kidding. I panicked. And what did I do? I ran. Now, for the young people in this room, that is not the proper response. <laughs> There's been riots that's happened due to that kind of an approach. But that's what I did. I went down to my floor. I ran up the hallway to my room. I opened the door, went in, shut it. And I'm like, Michelle, that leader from Kansas City is going to be so mad. I've got to have an alibi. So what did I do? I changed my yellow shirt, put on my blue Kansas Jayhawk shirt. And I was like... That's not enough. She's still going to figure out it's me. I need to do my devotions right now. <laughs> so I pulled out my Bible. My thought was, they're going to figure out it's me. They're going to knock on the door, and I'm going to be having a holy moment. And they're going to feel so bad that this is the wrong guy. And we interrupted his Bible study with God. Needless to say, they cleared two floors of that hotel looking for me, and I did not own up to it until halfway on the trip back. My dad is sitting here, and I can tell you that they called in advance, and he was waiting for me when I got back to Kansas City. It was a prank gone bad. But I share that story with you in this moment is that when we're caught and we feel like, now again, I had done nothing really wrong other than violate my word with Michelle, but the point was, is I tried to cover over what was going on. There was a mistruth being spoken about me, but I tried to create some kind of illusion so that they wouldn't think the way that they were going to be thinking of me. Paul is in the same situation. It's human reasoning. You're being accused of not being a Jew's Jew. So what should we do? Make you like a Jew's Jew. Take on a Nazarite vow. Practice it with those men. Pay for it. And then that will fix everything. Problem is, it didn't work. In fact, not at all. Look at what happens in chapter, uh, in verse 27, I'm sorry, and following. When seven days were nearing its end. So he's practicing this Nazarite vow for seven days. Uh, some Jews from where he had just come from, up by Ephesus, came down and they saw Paul in Jerusalem. And they saw him at the temple and they're like, and so they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who taught us, taught everyone everywhere against our people against our law and against this temple. And besides, he brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Luke provides this little side note. They had previously seen Trophimus, an Ephesian, in the city with Paul and simply had assumed that he had gone with Paul into the temple, but that it did not happen. 
The whole city was aroused under this false accusation. And so the people came running from all directions. They seized Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, while they were trying to kill him, news reached out to the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw that the commander and his saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up, arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Agabus and his prophecy now comes to fulfillment. Handed over by Jews, carried out by Gentiles. Exactly as Agabus had said. So then they, they carried him out. But some in the crowd shouted one thing and some shouted another. And since the commander could not get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken back to the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by soldiers. The crowd that followed kept, that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him. So... You have this situation. It's gotten out of control. The idea of, of trying to take on this intense Nazarite vow did not work. The crowd is even more agitated. What happens next? What do you do? I mean, going back to my story, it's like you want to defend yourself. You want to correct the story. You want to make sure truth is known. So Paul does what I think any of us would do. He makes a personal defense. Look at verse 3 of chapter 22. Paul says, listen, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in Jerusalem. And I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And the high priest and all the council can test themselves testify that I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul begins his defense by saying, listen, I, grew, I was born in Seleucia, but I grew up and was raised and taught in the epicenter of the Jewish faith. In Jerusalem itself. So he is saying, I am a Jew's Jew. I grew up in Jerusalem. Excuse me, I grew up in Jerusalem. I was taught by Gamaliel, who was considered the greatest teacher of that time in the law. And then he says, I was even zealous to the point where I was forcing others to do the same, even killing them if necessary. But then he begins in verse 6 of chapter 22, telling his testimony. His story of how he met Jesus and how that on that way to Damascus, he, a bright light blinded him. Uh, but before it blinded him, he sees Jesus. And Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And then he sends him on to meet Ananias. And then ultimately, Paul gives his life to Christ. And in verse 21, he says that ultimately that Christ called him and sent him to go to the Gentiles. In verse 21, it says, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, though, the Jews listening to his testimony didn't care for what he just said there. Then they raised their voices and rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. Remember two weeks ago, I said that it's about the gospel. And sometimes there's a point where you share it. 
and sometimes there's not. And when there's agitation and confusion, it's not likely a place where you'll get the opportunity to truly win somebody's soul. So it is here. This crowd was agitated. They weren't there to listen. They listened to his story, and they certainly are under condemnation because of the story, but it did not appeal to their hearts. I got a feeling that in this moment, at this very moment, Paul's saying, God, you are with me here. Where are you at now? You're with me here in these places when I spoke before the crowds, but where are you with me now? Where is God in these moments? Next week and the week following, you're going to see that some pretty profound things happen in Paul's life. Again, you can make a case one way or the other as to whether or not Paul was supposed to go. But what we do know is God's plan was on great display in this moment and the moments beyond. Paul ends up getting audience with a king. Paul ends up getting audience with the lead Roman leader of that region. Paul gets the opportunity to speak the gospel once again to the Sanhedrin, his fellow Jewish leaders. God's plans were not being thwarted. They were on display. So the question then that it come back to what we feel when, when it gets so intense and it's not going well and it only seems to keep getting worse. Where is God? Luke, as he's writing this in, in hindsight, can point out God was right there. God was right there in helping Paul be prepared for the fact he was going to be arrested. God was right there helping Paul know that it was not going to be an easy journey while in Jerusalem. God was right there that when it did turn chaotic and those false accusations were right there, it actually led to the Romans taking him, arresting him, and giving him audience with the truly influential leaders of that entire region and ultimately giving him audience with Caesar. I would look at this and say, what the enemy meant for harm God turned it on its head and made a brilliant move and gave it into his means and saying, I'm going to make this used to my glory. I mean, after all, Paul is here and it's seemingly losing the battle. But Paul gets taken to Rome from here. And what happens in Rome? While Paul will lose his life in Rome and that Caesar will eventually die, just two Caesars later, I believe, the battle was won. The heart of Caesar was given over to Christ. Not through weapons of human hands, but through the weapon of the gospel. After watching thousands and thousands of Christians die in Rome and die over the Roman world under Nero, Constantine's heart was moved. And it forever changed the trajectory of the gospel. You see, while we think the battle is being lost, it's actually being won. Was it not Joseph who said in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, says when he's talking to his brothers, his brothers who had sold him into slavery, sent him off to Egypt and telling their father that he was dead. 
Was it not Joseph that said to them, to those brothers who had done something so evil, and he said, you know, what you meant for evil and harm to me, God has brought about for good to save you. What was meant for harm by this crowd towards Paul, what was seemingly chaos that was losing the day where God wasn't around, ultimately gave him audience with the king, which then led to audience with the Roman leader, which then led to audience with the Roman leader. And the Roman world was about ready to lose the battle to the Christian faith. You see, they won the hearts because that's what God's about. He's about changing lives, not about winning the moments. The enemy thinks that he's winning when he creates chaos like this in our lives. Going back to that moment, I thought that was stripping me of the opportunity to minister to teenagers, having that attorney threaten me like that. But looking back, I can see that God was doing something in my life, reminding me that there is an adversary who is always at work. Even when good things are happening, there's always an adversary working. I don't know why that particular moment had to happen the week after, but God has always put me in a careful place since then to realize that when there is stuff going that you can see that God is doing incredible things, just know that the enemy is ticked off. So don't be so surprised that the enemy gets involved and trying to wreck your life. So my takeaways from a text like this is that <laughs> when things seem to be going awry and where God doesn't seem to be anywhere around, I, I can honestly say, even in those moments where I felt like he was a thousand miles away, God was right there. Not only was he right there, he was doing a work that I couldn't even understand. And then secondly, that not always, even though there's things being done that, he, that is not discernible or easily understood, I have to be willing to accept the fact that I may never understand. I don't know that the leaders of the church, when Luke writes this, I don't get the sense that Luke fully understood yet why he had to go to Jerusalem. That's why he puts verse 4 there saying, through the Spirit, we're telling you, don't go. Because I, I get the sense that Luke is saying, you're not supposed to go. And, and even when he's writing this, he was not supposed to go. He was, by the time he was writing this, he was probably already incarcerated in Rome. And Luke is saying, that's a shame. He should be free by now. But us, with hindsight, know Paul was going to see, through his leadership, a couple generations later, Rome being one. And thus, the known world at that time being impacted with the gospel. Which leads to my last point. Staying the course of God's mission is, as Ed pointed out last week, not always the safest place to be, but it is the best place to be. Sometimes when we're in the center of God's will and walking where he wants us to walk, it gets messy. But that doesn't mean that God left us but if we are where God wants us to be, then we are in the best place to be because we have a God who loves us and has a plan and he's going to utilize us to fulfill that plan. We have to just trust that when we can't discern it or understand it, that he's doing a work beyond our understanding. Let's pray.
about ready to end with the song. But I want to just open the opportunity that one of the things that I, was so important for me when that attorney falsely accused me was that a group of people at Hershey Free Church who had heard the accusation and knew it not to be true gathered around me and prayed for me and prayed that God would bring about truth and that somehow through this situation, God would be glorified. We have people up front that will, be pray, that will be available to pray with you. There are certainly people here that maybe you come with that would be willing to pray with you. If you're in a situation right now where you're being falsely accused or there's something that seems unjust, let somebody come around you to pray and pray that God will bring about his greater glory. So God, I don't know who's here in this room that might be in that moment or in that situation or maybe it's past but it's still very fresh. God, would you reveal yourself that your ways are not our ways and that you are not thwarted. What may have seemed like the enemy was winning the day, he was actually losing the battle. So God, reveal to us anew your sovereignty. Reveal to us anew your presence and your leadership. Amen. So God, I don't know who in this room might be or this was a little raw for them or fresh because they're under that sense of wanting to defend because they're under assault or they've been under assault. And, and so God, first of all, let the Spirit lead in their life. Second, surround them with people that are also led by your Spirit that they might get good counsel. And thirdly, let your will and your sovereignty be on display that you are accomplishing something greater than they would ever expect. To your glory and to the accomplishment and the growth of your kingdom, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Don't be afraid to reach out to somebody and have them pray with you this morning. We do have somebody up front that would be willing to. I'm up here, um, and so we would want you to not walk out of here alone and isolated. Let us bless you in that way. You're dismissed.